more of the MBIT Podcast with Seamus Medan. Welcome, everyone, back to another episode of the MBIT Podcast. I'm your host, Seamus Bedan, and today we have a very special guest, the one and only David Abney, who is the former chairman and CEO of UPS. David's story is anything but traditional. At the age of 19 years old, he began his career as a part-time package loader at UPS. Little did he know, doing so would start off his trajectory to CEO and leading one of the largest package delivery companies in the world. So first off, thank you, David, for taking the time to join the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Well, thank you, Seamus. And I have a feeling there's going to be a time down the road, people are going to be saying the one and only Seamus. So I'm looking <laughs> forward to seeing that. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. But yeah, let's start off with you know your journey and how you first came across UPS and why did you initially decide to join the company? Well, thanks for asking. I was 18 years old. I was a freshman in college. I needed to work to go through college. And I had a friend that referred UPS to me. At that time, you got to remember, this was 1974. I don't know that I'd ever seen a UPS truck. I'm sure I'd seen them on the street, but I don't remember any of them ever coming to our house. And so I didn't know a lot about it, but I did the interview and I thought it'd be a great college job. I didn't think any further than that. The pay was higher than what grocery stores and retail stores were. The, the work was going to be a lot harder, too, but I didn't know that. So that's really the way that I got started. I tell my wife, we've been married 46 years, we were dating at the time, that I took the job at UPS to have beer and pizza money for with her. Yeah, you, I noticed you ended up staying there, obviously, for a significant period of time, for decades, in fact. But you told the story at a conference before how you wanted to be a history professor. But after about a year into the job, your manager changed your mind and convinced you to stay at the company. What did he say that compelled you to shift your career trajectory and stay at UPS? That is a interesting story, and I give him full credit. So I was 19 years old, and I did have an affinity and still do for history. In fact, I'm a board of curator or board of directors, you'd call it, for the Georgia Historical Society. So I'm still very involved in history. But in 19, I had this manager of a local Mississippi depot that took some time one night and put his arm, actually put his arm on my shoulder. It was a very casual conversation. And started telling me about this great company, about UPS. Things that I just didn't know how it founded and what it believed and where it was going. And then, Seamus, he started telling me what a great person that I was. I'd only been working there maybe eight months. And it started giving me all these positive attributes. And nobody other than my parents had ever talked to me about that kind of stuff. And they have to, right? They're your parents. (laughs) Yeah. uh, But by the time he got through that night, the terminology we use is I became brown-blooded because of UPS Brown. From that day forward at 19 years old, I knew I wanted to spend my career at UPS. And how did that journey eventually lead up to becoming the CEO of the company? Through that journey, what would be some advice you'd have for maybe the next generation who are looking forward to advancing their careers? Maybe they're starting off at a similar place where you were back in the day. What would be your advice to those people? 
Okay, I well, I did start as a part-time loader, which meant I was I was at the most beginning job. All jobs at UPS are important, but I was certainly at the lower end of that scale. I sure didn't have a grand scheme to become the CEO. In my neighborhood in Mississippi, there were no CEOs. I can tell you that. I'm not even sure I would have known what a CEO was. And uh, I did know that that this was a national company at the time. Now, of course, it's an international company, but at the time it was a national company, had a great reputation, and they strongly believed in promotion from within. So that is how people really grew in this company. So I committed to myself that I was going to go as far as I could possibly go and I was going to do everything possible to get there. And obviously, within the rules, regulations, stuff like that. And I'll just give you a couple of examples because, you know, they're going to be different examples for your viewers or your listeners. But it's still so at 18, 19 years old, if I would find out we were going to have a big visitor coming into our building from, from another office I would come in on my own and and scrub the floors clean and wax them. And I would have that old building that we had look like it was brand new, at least from the floor anyway. And no one told me to do it. No one asked me to do it. It's just the kinds of things that I did. And I wasn't even doing it to be recognized. But obviously, people recognized it. And, and I'll give you another example. So I graduate from college. I'm 21. And at that time at UPS, before you went into management, and it's still a path a lot of people take, you would drive as a package driver first. So we moved everything we had in 74 Monte Carlo and, and moved five hours down to the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And I became a driver. And I was one of eight drivers, the least senior driver, of course, because I was brand new. And and right after that, maybe three months later, UPS moved the supervisor out of that office and decided to have a driver that would be a lead driver that would dispatch the center and would take care of things as they drove. Now, to this day, I don't know if the seven people that had more seniority than me turned it down so I was the last choice. <laughs> I was the first choice because of what they recognized. I have no idea. They asked me to be the lead driver. And so here I am dispatching drivers that have been there for years. And I barely had seniority. The thing that makes the story a little unique is that some days we would only have enough work for seven drivers. I would lay myself off. And my wife thought she had married maybe the least smart person, I'm putting this in nice terms, that existed. Because we were living paycheck to paycheck at the time. And I'll never forget the question of who lays themselves off. (laughs) But we didn't have enough work to do. I did that. And in a very short time, I was promoted into management. And I know that there were people at UPS that said, hey, if this guy's willing to lay it, <laughs> he's willing to do a lot of things. And then just to give your listeners an idea, you know, we moved eight, 10 different times. I worked nights, 10 years. I mean, it's not like I went from being a 
part-time loader to a driver to a CEO in a very quick period of time. It was about a 35, 40-year journey, but it was one step at a time. And, and I had to be willing to step to the plate at each of those times. But I was surrounded with such a network of good UPS employees and managers that coached and helped me. And every time UPS would take me out of my comfort zone, I would have people that would help me in the next job. And this will be the last story I'll tell about that and let you go on. But so I spent my first three moves were in Mississippi. Then I did the big move, I thought, to Nashville, Tennessee, Luff, Mississippi. Then we got transferred to New Jersey. And Seamus, when you grow up in Mississippi and a little bit of Tennessee, transferring me to New Jersey was like transferring me to a foreign country. (laughs) I say New Jersey is foreign. Some people would say Mississippi is foreign. It depends on your perspective. I'm just telling you, I was so far out of my comfort zone. And thank God there was just a lot of good UPSs to help me along the way. And I would have never become CEO if I couldn't have made that kind of step. But during the process, I'm going, what in the world have I gotten myself into? You know? Yeah. I mean, you made a, a couple of key great points and the key takeaway from that, you always have to put in the work and take that extra hour, or that extra day or that extra step like you did with mopping the floors when you had the big guests come. All those can end up compounding up to really make a big difference. But the next thing is, you know, I've had the opportunity to speak with a few different startups in the logistics space, including one, although very early, is doing something pretty interesting. That's building underground tunnels in cities to help decrease traffic and move packages from one end of New York City to the other in just a matter of a couple of minutes. I know UPS uh, combined with the use of drones by UPS was, I believe, the first to receive the FAA Part 135 certification standard by which regulators approve drone delivery. As we see all these new technologies with drones and underground package delivery, what do you see for the future of logistics? I can tell you that I think we're entering the most exciting time ever of uh, logistics. Now, I'm saying that as I've retired, right? When I look at the potential and I look at at where a lot of these technologies will lead us, I believe that whether it's 10 years or 15 years, that we're going to see more change than we've seen in the last 100 years. It's just that exciting. A lot of that will certainly be driven by AI, right? And it just gives possibilities and can play scenarios that you just couldn't do prior. And now you have to take all that data and you have to be able to apply it to real world situations, but but that's coming and it's coming quickly. And you know, drones and other forms of, of automated delivery are going to just make a big difference. And they're probably gonna come a lot quicker than you think. Doesn't mean it's gonna replace the driver in the package car anytime soon, but it's going to, to supplement, and you're going to see more automation in buildings, and it's just going to be much more efficient. And and I don't know that anybody that can see far enough out that could tell you in 15 years what what we're going to be doing because it's going to change that quick. And and there's going to be reluctance to change, but this is not a status quo world that we live in. You can't stay the same, and if you do. Nobody's going to know who you are as a company in a few years because you would be passed up. So 
I just think for people your age, the the exciting opportunities that are going to be out there are just going to be pretty incredible. Absolutely. And we saw that a little bit with Blockbuster and Netflix. When Netflix started taking the world by storm, Blockbuster CEO actually laughed the co-founders out of their office saying the internet just would never work. And they ended up being the ones to go out of business. So I agree with you on that. You got to stay up with the pace of innovation or you will be left behind. I think it's very important, especially when you have listeners that may start their own businesses someday. And you can look at that and you can say, man, did Blockbuster miss that? And, uh, and you could say that Kodak did the same thing with them and, and stuff like that. The problem that businesses face is when you are in a existing situation and you are being extremely successful and you are the market leader and you're making all kinds of money, then your purpose, without you even realizing it, is just trying to Make sure that the cash cow or the golden goose just keeps delivering, right? And so sometimes you can get blind to the fact that things are going to change right in front of your eyes. And it's not because you're not smart and you can't figure things out. It's because you can get so focused on your being the market leader and you want to continue that that then you just lose it and you lose it quickly. So I'm not defending anybody but I can sure see how it happens. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, no, those are some some great points. And even if Blockbuster ended up did acquiring Netflix during that meeting, we still would have never known where it could have happened. Netflix might never have ended up going on to be the leader that it was today, mainly because of the cultures that were in those two different firms clashing together. The Blockbuster could have kept down the culture of innovation for Netflix, which could have really changed the dynamics of, at play. One of the interesting facts I came across is that UPS trucks rarely take left turns and actually prefer taking right-hand turns. And the numbers show it's around 90% of estimated trucks make right-hand turns over left-hand turns. Why is this a genius strategy in terms of efficiency? And why does UPS do it? I get asked about this all the time. So you're very observant. And so are a lot of other people. And and I'll tell you, it's, it's pretty simple when you do all the modeling. And right-hand turns versus left-hand turns. Visualize being in your car today. You're at a red light. If you're making a right-hand turn, then you can turn in most states during a red light. And, and you don't have oncoming cars that are facing you coming at the same time you're doing those turns. When you're doing left-hand turns, uh, first place, you can't turn left on red. Second, when it does turn green, you've got to let every car come by first. So from a safety standpoint, there's a lot more intersection accidents by turning left than there ever are by turning right. And, and when you think about it, it's pretty obvious as, as to why. And then second, from an efficiency standpoint, you're talking seconds, if not 30 seconds or more at each turn, which you can think, well, somebody's being a little anal if they're spending that much time on just making a turn. But when you take, if an average driver would have 200 stops a day, we'll just say they they turn 200, 250 times a day. And if there's 125,000 or so drivers times you know, the number of days in a year, 
you can get to be between five and 10 billion turns. If you're saving a few seconds per turn, and if you're saving just a few accidents per 100,000 hours, you are just making one tremendous gain there. So, so there's an, a little bit of art, but there's a whole lot of science. And since we cover all areas, you can design the network to go right to left, or you can design the network to go left to right. You'd be out of your mind to do it left to right, but you could. And so that's what's driven that. Gotcha. Yeah, it's super fascinating. And one of the key, I think, themes that have come across when I've interviewed a lot of these CEOs is the topic of partnerships, especially maybe earlier earlier in a company. But you've had partnerships with big companies such as Apple, Amazon, and Macy's. How have those partnerships played a valuable role for the development of the business? You know, partnerships to any business are very important. And the fact that I have retired from UPS for over two years or so, obviously, I wouldn't be talking about existing UPS partnerships, but I can talk about keys to making partnerships so successful. And the first thing is that, that you've got to have two companies that, that have mutual ambitions. In other words, they can define success in a very similar manner. Because if success is defined by one partner quite differently than the other, it's just not going to ever work. So you've got to have a vision that allows you to do that. Second is is there's got to be reasons that everyone wants to do it. Some of our best partnerships at UPS were where we provided logistics services to us, but that our customers provided goods and services back. So, so now you're not doing it just in one direction, but you're doing it in two. Everybody's just a little bit more motivated when you do that. Then you have to agree on the metrics, and you have to make sure that the metrics that you agree on are reasonable. And then you have to make sure that the benefit is very similar for each company. If you try to get too greedy and you try to make the benefit much better for you than for your partner, then it's just not going to last. You may think you're a better negotiator, and maybe you are in the short term, but you you just ruin the partnership. And so those are some of the things that are secret. But let me tell you what really was an important partnership with UPS, because everybody thinks about the big customers, and we do have big customers, but we just have hundreds of thousands of small and mid-sized companies, companies that, that you may know if they were, you know, in whatever town you grew up in or something, little small mom and pop shops, but nobody else is going to know. But with our system and our technology, being able to partner with these hundreds of thousands of small companies is where UPS adds its full value. And it allows these little companies to operate as if they're much big, like they have worldwide networks. And, and there again, you just got to make sure that the value proposition is good on both sides. 
Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that can come with growing a company, especially as you scale, is acquisitions. So during your time at UPS, you had the opportunity to oversee multiple acquisitions. And during the acquisitions, one of the things that can happen is you have two different company cultures under one roof. How did you manage the various combinations of cultures and missions to make them synonymous across thousands of employees? You know, you have to do it very carefully. And everyone knows that blending cultures is very difficult. And everyone's got a theory, but until you actually do it, it's just hard to realize how difficult it can be. Fortunately, over the last 20, 25 years of my life at UPS, I was involved in all the major acquisitions, but I actually got to run two of them. And that was where we would acquire a smaller company and the owner of the company would stay for a certain amount of time and then they would go on to other things. And I got to run those companies and I got to learn firsthand the importance of culture. I got to learn firsthand that that the UPS way is not always the right way in all situations. And, and there's a few things that you can do to increase your success. First is you've got to do your due diligence before you ever make the acquisition. There are just some companies that just can't go together. Cultures are just two completely different. And, and you've got to recognize that. And when you realize that's not going to happen, you got to have the courage to walk away. You know, you can fall in love with deals. But if you see it's just too much of a difference, it's not going to work. you got to walk away. You're walking away from both sides when you do it, but you've got to be willing to do that. The other thing is you really have to look at the mission of the company and then you compare to, you to in my case, UPS's mission and, and where are their commonalities and where can you continue And then you have to look at where are things different and can they continue to be different? And do they provide additional value? And if they do, you've got to know when not to change things. You know, it's so easy to have a blueprint. You say within five years, I'm going to change everything. But if you do that, why didn't you just build a business from the ground up instead of acquiring a company? What you're trying to do is acquire the very best of these companies, and then you maintain that, and then you fit that within the supply chain of of the parent, and uh, UPS in my case. And so that's the key. And one of the things you have to do is quickly identify in these companies the people that are just so important. Because I can tell you that when you do an acquisition, If you divide employees in three categories, I'm being a little generic here, but if you do, those who are absolute, the best of the best, those who do a good average job, and then those who are on the lower end of that, when you do an acquisition, the people that are most at risk are the people that caused you to buy the acquisition in the first place because they're just so talented, they're so important. But a lot of other people know they're important too, and they offer them all kinds of special things, and they tell them, you're going to get lost in a large company. And so you really have to focus on those people. 
And the people that you're least likely to lose are the ones that aren't doing a very good job because they see the stability of a big company and they hope they can continue to just kind of do just enough to get by. And if you've got to lose people, those are the ones you'd rather lose. Hopefully you can convert them and get them to be big believers. But that top of the top, we call them top notchers. You can call them whatever you want to. Those are the people you have to keep if you're going to have a successful acquisition. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it's something we saw a little bit. We talked about it before with Elon Musk when he acquired Twitter. He One of the mistakes he ended up making was actually firing a lot of the top executives and he had to struggle to get some of them back. But as we wrap it up here, what would be some of your takeaways for the next generation looking to advance their career? Well, good. I'd love to talk about this. I can warn your listeners in advance. There are some things <clears throat> they're going to like that I'm about to say, and there are some things that many of them will not. So <laughs> the great thing about it is they can choose to turn us off or they can keep us on, but, uh, but I really feel there's some key things that I need to say. First, I, I have real hope for this next generation, you know, I'm not one of these older guys that, that thinks, oh, Lord, the world's gone down. People don't care the way we cared and that the world's in big trouble. I don't see that at all. I see this generation has a, a big excitement level for making the world better that they live in. They think things haven't been done as well in certain areas. They're right. And I think this generation wants to be the generation that's going to, to change that. They also, this generation has more access to knowledge and information than any past generation. When I was your age, if I wanted to find out something about a different part of the world, I went to an encyclopedia. You probably don't even know what they are. Maybe you've seen a relic. And I would open it up, and, and that's what I'd read. Unfortunately, the encyclopedia would be 10 years old or more, but, uh, but that was how I learned. Now, this generation can learn things the minute it happens. Now, they also learn a lot of things that didn't happen. They get reported. As, <laughs> as so there's a lot more misinformation out there than there was when I was your age. But there's so much more information. And as long as people are continuous improvement and, and they are intellectually curious to where when they see there's things they don't know that they find out about those things, then those are the people that are going to have more success. Others are going to try to bluff their way through, act like they know stuff they don't know. The only person they wind up fooling at the end of the day is themselves because people that really do know, they they detect imposters quickly, so you don't fool anyone. And But here's what I really want your listeners to hear, and this is where some of them may not like it, but the first truth in life is opportunities are earned. They are not given. There are too many people in this world that can be 20 years later saying, I never got my opportunity. And that's because they were waiting for somebody to hand it to them. Seamus, it just doesn't happen that way. 
And and you're a good example of that. I met you, obviously, in a very big event at Columbia Business School at the Deming Cup, and you were helping out there. And you were in a room. I don't know if you were waiting on us, if you were just there anyway, it doesn't matter. But you were in a room. You were there to help us. You made some differences. You took initiative. And then after that fact, you asked me to be part of that podcast. I just have to tell you, I get too many requests for me to be able to do them and do all opportunities. If you hadn't made an impression on me on what you were doing, there's just no way I would have taken time to do this. So it's a small way you may think, but you earned that opportunity. By the time this podcast is over, you may regret it, but you, <laughs> you earned it anyway, and that's why I'm here. But you cannot wait. It can't be given. There's no entitlement. And, and people that think they're entitled for something, they're just going to be surely disappointed. It's a very competitive world that we live in. And if you don't differentiate yourself, if you don't stand out, you're never going to get the opportunities that that you feel like you deserve. And so you've got to go above and beyond. And you have to figure out what above and beyond means. But if it's not more than what other people are doing, it is not going to work. You've got to continuously get better. There's nobody that's a finished product. And and you have to realize that. But then there's some personal social skills you got to know, too. One is you got to be humble. And I know that there's some movie generalizations and stuff about CEOs, how they can be, in some cases, arrogant or high on themselves or, or stuff like that. But I'm telling you, in the real world, if you're going to be successful leading people, you've got to be humble. You've got to have a servant attitude. You've got to show people you care about them. You show people you care about them. They will show you they care about you and they care about the company. That means that when things go right, if you're a leader, you always give your people credit. And if all you do is bang on your own chest, everybody's going to realize what you're doing. If you give people the credit they deserve, one, they will follow you anywhere. And two, by the way, the people above you, they're going to know what you're doing. You don't have to tell them, you know, you just tell them how great your people are and what you've done. On the other hand, and this is very difficult for some people, when things go bad, and they do in every job, They do. When things go bad, a true leader takes responsibility for things going bad. Doesn't make excuses. Doesn't point at someone else. Doesn't try to have a scapegoat. Doesn't fire somebody that's innocent so that they can uh, continue. But they take the blame. They learn from it. I learned much more from my mistakes than I ever learned from my successes. There's no doubt about that. You learn from it. You try not to make the same mistake again. You set high goals. This thing about setting low goals and beating them, anybody can do that. Setting high goals and beating them, very few people can do that. And you've got to be persistent and determined 
you cannot let things get in your way. And what I mean by that is we're all going to have mitigating circumstances that come up. That can be an excuse not to succeed, or we can take ownership of the problem, figure out how we get around it or how we mitigate it to some degree. But it's a big difference between being an owner of your situation and being a victim of your circumstance. And and the true leader is going to be the one that is going to take charge and is going to make things happen. So I know I've said a lot. You may have some questions. You may have some things you want to add to that. But I just want you to know that there's a lot of your listeners that are going to do great things. There's not a doubt in my mind. They've got, and you said it very early at our broadcast, they've got to be willing to do the hard work. If they just think it's going to come easy, it's not. Yeah, that's a great thing to leave off at. I think, you know, you always have to be actionable. I think the other thing that can always play well with success is, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, the people skills and just being able to network and talk with other people and provide value in that network. But yeah, you left it off at a great point. All right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to leave a five-star review down below and share it with a friend could have some value in the show. And thank you very much, David, for taking the time to join the podcast. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Seamus, and good luck to you. You're going to do big things. I got a lot of confidence in that. I appreciate it. 